Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. So glad you could be with us for this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We've been talking this week about LDS temples because a number of these buildings are going to be opening up in the coming weeks and months for the general public to come in and see what is inside these buildings. Now, you won't learn a lot about what goes on in these buildings. Most of the explanation will be very vague, nothing very specific. We recently had the opportunity to visit the Saratoga Springs Temple. And Eric, you're going to be talking about some of your experiences when you went to Helena, Montana, and also Bentonville, Arkansas for the opening there. In yesterday's show, we were talking about what people could expect visiting one of these temple open houses, as they are called. You mentioned how we see this baptismal font. This is where Latter-day Saints baptize on behalf of the dead. They get this from 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Well, Joseph Smith takes this phrase and he latches onto it and he makes this elaborate doctrine out of this. But yet Paul was trying to get across there wasn't anything about a ritual that early Christians were practicing that was considered somewhat orthodox. He says, else what shall they do? He doesn't even name who's doing this, and we don't even know specifically what exactly they were doing. But the problem in Paul's eyes is they were doing something which contains the idea that there would be eventually a bodily resurrection. And Paul's merely bringing out, why are you doing this if you don't believe there's a bodily resurrection? So that's what Paul is actually doing in 1 Corinthians 15. I should mention again that the font that is in this building, and it's a significant edifice, it certainly is very unique because it looks very similar to what was known as the Brazen Sea or the Molten Sea in the Old Testament. Solomon's temple had something like this, but as I mentioned yesterday, Zerubbabel's temple did not have this in it, and the temple that Herod had built did not have any edifice like this at all. They had a laver, which was used for the ceremonial washing of the priests. But Christians did not participate in anything like this in the first century, even though we are given the impression that this too, like Mormonism itself, is a restoration of how things were done in the first century. And historically, that just is not accurate. Bill, in our book, Answering Mormon's Questions, Ready Responses for Inquiring Latter-day Saints, that was published back in 2013. D.A. Carson is somebody we cited on page 179. I just want to quickly read this because it's the only passage that talks about baptism for the dead, and I think you're exactly right in your analysis. This is what he said. The reason is not that God must say things more than once for them to be true or binding. The reason, rather, is that if something is said only once, it is easily misunderstood or misapplied. When something is repeated on several occasions and in slightly different contexts, readers will enjoy a better grasp of what is meant and what is at stake. That is why the famous Baptism for the Dead passage of 1 Corinthians 15.29 is not unpacked at length and made a major plank in, say, the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Confession. 
Over 40 interpretations of that passage have been offered in the history of the church. Mormons are quite sure what it means, of course, but the reason why they are sure is because they are reading it in the context of other books that they claim are inspired and authoritative. And of course, this portion of the ceremony is important to Latter-day Saints because, as I mentioned earlier, baptism in water is essential for true salvation. And since the dead, who have never heard about Mormonism, obviously were not baptized, Latter-day Saints do this on their behalf, giving them an opportunity to accept what has been done for them vicariously. And if they embrace Joseph Smith's restored gospel, then that baptism that was done for them becomes efficacious in their hereafter. So this is why it's very important. Now, where do we read any of this in the New Testament? We don't. This is why this is not a restoration at all. This goes back to the LDS Church. It's very unique with them. One more quote from D.A. Carson, and he's talking about the questions that are asked, and you mentioned they are being used, the pronoun they. He says, the most plausible interpretation is that some in Corinth were getting baptized vicariously for the dead. Several factors, however, put this into perspective. Although Paul does not explicitly condemn the practice, neither does he endorse it. Several writers have offered the analogy, imagine a Protestant writing, why do they then pray for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? No one would take this as an endorsement of the practice of praying for the dead. It is a criticism of the inconsistency of praying for the dead while holding that the dead do not rise. To make this rhetorical question an endorsement of the practice of praying for the dead, one would expect, why do we then pray for the dead. I think that's an important point because Paul changes from using first person plural pronoun throughout we and us, and he changes to they. That makes no sense. He's just saying, as a part of my argument for the resurrection of the body, why then do they do this? Never was associated with Paul or early Christians. One thing you do notice about the temple is there's a lot of rooms. And they have names for these rooms. And one of the rooms is called an initiatory room. This is where Latter-day Saints go and they are washed and anointed. I've never had that as a part of the tours I've been on. But in Helena, you were allowed to actually go in there. They were showing the initiatory rooms. Now, I've seen the initiatory room in the San Diego temple, but that was only because a security guard that was escorting me around towards the end of the open house As we were walking by where I knew they were, I asked him if I could see them, and he thought that wouldn't be a problem, but there was a young lady sitting there with this plastic chain blocking our entrance down the hallway of some sort to these rooms. Uh, She refused us to go past that chain. He was miffed by that, and as we walked down a little bit further, there was another chain, and he must have known that this was connected somehow. And he looked around and he says, come on. And he lifted the chain off of the hook and we walked in and he put it behind us. And and he says, here they are here. And I got to see them. Now, they weren't even finished at that time because they obviously knew they were not going to be allowing visitors to see these. So perhaps there wasn't a rush to get it finished. But when you were in Helena, Montana, tell us about that. Because when you told me this story, I thought, well, that's a little bit unusual. Yeah, in just the past few months, I've been to three different temple open houses. Let me mention Saratoga Springs had... The 
uh, Washington anointing rooms, uh, he had to walk by it. And I asked the guy that was in front of it, I knew what it was. And I said, are we allowed to go down there? He said, no. I said, well, is there any chance that I would be able to just go see what that room is? And he says, I'm not supposed to, I can get in trouble. But he says, okay. And so he took me down there and I got to see that. A similar situation took place in Bentonville, Arkansas, where I was able to see it because I knew where the room was. Uh, it was one floor, and I was able to figure out where it was, and I said, could I see that room? And just like you with the chain, he opened it up, and my friends and I were able to walk into uh, several different Washington anointing rooms. But in Helena, Montana, Trevor and Mark were with me, and these are really, if you want to talk about mini temples, this is, let's call it a miniature temple, because they're like Legos. They're, this is a new way that the church is building these f to save money. They're building them in the South, uh, the parts of them, and then they're taking them to the place, and they put them together sort of like Legos. It was an amazing building, but very small. I mean, we're talking 10,000 square feet. That's all this was, 10,000 square feet. And because it was so small, you couldn't help but to have to go buy the Washington anointing rooms. And so I was shocked because I have never seen on 29 different temple open house events where I have walked through the temple sometimes multiple times, not once have I ever been invited to see them. And they had the curtains there drawn so you could actually see the wash basin where the water and the oil would be. It looks like it's made of gold. When we saw that, the person who was with us was giving us kind of a mini tour and said, this is the Washington anointing rooms. I almost fell over because we got to see four of them, two for the men and two for the women. So why do you think, Bill, that on most temple open house tours, they don't want you to see this room? I, I think it would raise too many questions by a person who's visiting just out of curiosity and has no idea what, what the LDS people believe. And it's a little difficult to explain. Now, it's gone through a kind of an evolution, but there was a time when the person going through the Washington anointing room wore nothing on them but this, what they call a shield. Uh, they had no clothes on underneath it, and the shield was open on both sides. And a temple worker would ceremoniously wash various parts of their body and then repeat it by anointing them with oil. Not long ago, they started sewing up the side of the shield, so now they're closed, so they're not actually touching skin if they were even doing that to begin with. I guess it would depend on the temple worker. But that would be too much information, I think, for your average visitor. So why put yourself in that situation? So they just don't let you go see it. Then you go on to some other rooms, and the order in which you see these rooms sometimes changes. I guess it kind of depends on how busy they're going to be and they're trying to get all these people through in a, in a reasonable amount of time. But then you also go into this room that has all these theater seats and there's a curtain in the front of the room. I asked at one point, what goes on behind the curtain? And they never tell you what goes on other than perhaps, well, it leads to another room. I've heard that. But you see, this is where they are supposed to learn and give the various handshakes and passwords that they think are necessary to get them eventually into the celestial kingdom. They're not going to tell you all that. Let's say a tour guide was to tell the crowd, oh, yes, this is where we give tokens and keywords. Now you've got all these people wondering what in the world is a token and a key word. You're going to have to explain that. So they just don't say anything at all. But this is where they are watching a video of the creation and the fall of man, according to an LDS understanding, of course. At the Saratoga Springs Temple, 
we would eventually end up in the celestial room. And of course, this is a room that's very elaborate with very expensive antique looking uh, furniture, very ornate. And this is supposed to give us the impression, I guess, of what it may be like in the celestial kingdom. One interesting thing about the Saratoga Springs is they emphasize before you walked in, you're not allowed to talk, but they closed the doors and they allowed you to be there for three or four minutes and allowed you to sit on the chairs and the furniture, which is not at every Latter-day Saint Temple open house event. Uh, And so it was kind of awkward because nobody's talking. Everybody's just kind of looking around at the chandelier. And for me, uh, I'm praying the entire time I'm in there. And I think it should be mentioned again, we are given the impression that what the Latter-day Saints are doing in this building is a restoration, as is everything they claim they believe and do, is a restoration. See, these things allegedly were lost during a period of time that Latter-day Saints call the Great Apostasy. This is why Joseph Smith plays a significant role. God calls Joseph Smith to restore all these lost doctrines, these lost practices, But yet we don't find anywhere in history where Christians were doing these kind of things. Now, Latter-day Saints do believe this, but yet you find when you're talking to a lot of Latter-day Saints, they don't usually have a great knowledge of the New Testament, so they have really no focal point by which to draw a conclusion on whether what they're doing is significant historically with Christianity. And many times it's not. They just assume that this is what Christians did and and what Christians believe. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another Viewpoint on Mormonism. If you have been blessed by Viewpoint on Mormonism, won't you consider making Mormonism Research Ministry part of your missionary giving? Simply go to mrm.org and click the donate box in the upper right-hand corner. Your support, along with the call letters of this station, are greatly appreciated.